Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams, and we have a great show for you guys today. We are right back where we started, where we left off. We're doing our second part of honoring the six triple eight, the women of the all black female battalion of um, World War II and the Postal Battalion. So today we are going to be talking with the um, the head and lead of this particular battalion, which is her name was at during that time she was Major Charity Early. Um, but we're going to be talking to her son and daughter, uh, Stanley Early and Judith Early. Mr. Early began his career in government with the city of Dayton, Ohio, as a management analyst in office uh, in the office of management and budget. He, his extensive professional career spans more than 40 years with the experience both in public and private sectors. Uh, previously, Mr. Early pre previously worked for Prince George's County in the Office of Management and Budget from, 60, from 1996 to 2003, rising to the director position, then the deputy chief administrator office for budget, finance, and administration for PG County. Miss um, Judy Early is the youngest daughter of Major of Major Charity Early, and she received a BA in journalism and an MA in education. She's also the author of a fiction book called Eight to Five. Welcome, welcome to the two of you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So I want to just jump right in. I want to, you know, just really pick up where we left off, and I want you guys to. You know, just tell us some. Tell us about your mom, as a mom, and then how she, you know, got into the joining the army. Well, um, that's that's a that's a hard question in a way because you know when we were growing up, this was never something you know you thought about, and you know later on, I mean we were you know aware of it. Uh, I would say. I don't know what Judy would say. I, I certainly would say that uh, um, we had wonderful parents and um, and uh, she was always engaged in so much stuff in the community. We were always, uh, one of the things that was always, uh, um, both, both, both my mother and my father were, and so we, there were always discussions of what was going on and so forth. And, and, um, and so, um, you know, we, but it was in terms of growing up, she was mom. So. <laughs> okay. And Judy? Brian. I was going to say, and Judy? Well, um, we're six years apart. So um, when he went off to college, <clears throat> I was in the, <clears throat> excuse me, the fourth grade, I think it was. And so I spent a lot of time with my mother, you know, around the house and running errands. And but I, I know that she often went off to board meetings with different organizations, or uh, they would uh, invite her to come speak, and she would go out of town to give a speech. And but. I didn't think anything about that because, you know, whatever you grow up with, you think that's normal. And so she was just my mother. I never even, I don't even know when I actually found out that she had been in the Army, that both of our parents had been in the Army um, until, I don't know, I was much older. She was just my mother. So, so you never saw her like switch, turn into that lieutenant colonel or that major during that time. Like, was she always just mom, or was there no. ever a moment when the switch? You know, you saw the switch. I wouldn't say the switch. Don't remember ever seeing the switch. <laughs> I, I don't. I wouldn't say the switch, but I would say you know she was. She had a number of leadership roles, and I saw her in that situation. I mean, she was, um, you know, for a number of years, she was the chair of the housing authority in Dayton. She was on the, uh, she was vice president of Sinclair College. She was on the board of, uh, 
of, uh, of a bank and on the board of a she was on the Red Cross. She was on the National Board of Red Cross. And she was very, and she was involved in lots of different organizations. And I did have an interesting experience when I was at the beginning of my career. So there was some issue between the city of Dayton and the United Appeal. And United Appeal was at that time in Dayton was a board created that was made up of the United Way and the Red Cross. And my mother was, I don't know whether she was the chair of the United Appeal or she was one of the, the um, yes, officers. And so there was a meeting held uh, in City Hall about whatever this issue is. And I cannot remember what the issue was. was. And I was there at the table, but I was, of course, you know, like supporting staff. My mother was sort of leading the other discussion. My mother was very, she was really effective in the meeting. And the reason she was really effective in the meeting is because she read everything. And one of the things that she did, which I've, I wish I could say I do, I try to, but I am not, is that she read everything. So we, so you go into this meeting and it's, um, and she'd say, well, and she, you know, well, this is fine, except on page 15, that bottom paragraph clearly says da 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 Because she really was aware of all those things that nobody else really knew. And because she was so thorough, she was really, really effective. And that's something I saw. And I saw that in other occasions, but that was a time that I first became really aware of it. Well, that's interesting, because as you, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about our previous episode and there was a story that kind of came out about your mom mm -hmm. saying that she, she was in England. Um, I guess one of her ranking officers came to visit the base and wanted to see the women. Mm -hmm. So he expected this, turn, this turnout. He wanted to see all of them. And she's like, no love, they're working. So I will muster the women who are available to, to meet you, but the rest of them are doing, are doing their job. So she seems to, she just seems, is this a right impression? She seems to strike me as a very practically minded woman who was just prepared on, on just kind of every level. I would say that's, that's a fair statement. Um, um, the, um, I'm not sure was the, the, whether that had been occurred in England or France, maybe it was in England, I can't remember. But uh, the, yeah, there was a, there's a, um, you probably have, there's a, a, a documentary, uh, you probably have seen it, and you probably talked about it, and uh, they have a real, they talk about that really well. Yes, she would, yes, I would say that she definitely had a very a practical streak in that sense. Um, and, um, you know, she's very thoughtful and um, very, um, um, I guess some things about my mother that I guess more personal and Judy, this is you guys have. Um, my uh, my mother really likes sports, particularly baseball, and um, and my father was very into the arts and to music, and I'm really into the arts. And my sister is very much a baseball fan, uh, and uh, so my mother was very was very, um, was decidedly not musical, whatever the opposite of musical is, but she was very, very much into, uh, into sports and particularly baseball. And so she, um, you know, that was something that was always really important. It was always in the background of life. And are you aware of anything in her, her family background, like her parents and her, and her siblings, if she, if she had them and grandparents? Um, she seems to have felt very comfortable in a leadership role in public service. Is that kind of a, was that a theme in her family? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Judy, you go ahead. Um, well, <clears throat> her father, granddaddy, he was a, a an AME minister. And uh, was he a bank president? I no. don't know. Uh, uh, he worked at, he 
was a bank executive, but he was an AME minister. So she was a PK. And um, I'm sure she got a lot of that from him. PK has a preacher's kid, for those that didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the, think whole, the whole family, the whole side of the family with the last name Adams is, they have very strong leadership skills. Yes. Well, because I mean, I have to appreciate that skill in her because in, in a lot of ways, she was dropped into an unenviable situation. I think that's the adjective I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with because, you know, being faced with such a huge backlog of mail, no real processes in place to, to deal with it, to, to get the mail processed and the front lines where the men were serving who needed that kind of morale. I just imagine the inner fortitude that that someone had to have and the confidence that they would have to have to feel as though they could tackle that. You know, you you hit something that's interesting because um, and and the family thing is interesting too. And because I mean, I would say that she that she was all she was. I don't know what the right word is, but the idea that. You're comp you know, you have a thing to do, you figure out the way to do it, you proceed to do it. Um, and, you know, you do the very best you can. And hopefully that will be successful. And I will say that, you know, you know, she had a brother who was an AME bishop, and she had a, a, a sister who became a, a, um, the head of a, a head of a a business school at Florida A&M, and another brother who became a, um, a, a um, State Department, um, one of the highest was, was at the time, um, you know, um, um, one of the highest ranking uh, African Americans in the State Department. Um, you know, they were very, but they never, they were not, the whole group, was not very, they were not braggarts. They not, they were like, you have a task, you go do it and you expect to do it. And my mother was very much like that. And um, and I can remember from both my parents, the sort of sense that, you know, I'm not gonna tell you what you should do, but whatever you should do, you do the best you can, you know, it's not, you know, and uh, that's, I think that was, I honestly, the description, the situation you're describing is clearly very difficult. I can see my mother being dealing with it, you know, not, I mean, you know, I just, I, I can see her dealing with it. And she definitely was proud of, of what they did. Um, I'm jumping around, but there was an event in, and you, Probably could uh, you probably can look it up and C-SPAN. There was an event in the 1990s when uh, President Clinton had um, there was a uh, an event that was honoring black veterans, uh, honoring honoring basically all black veterans. It was it was basically a pageant that went on for hours, but it was on C-SPAN and um, and at the end of the event. Shelly Casfili, who was the chair of the Joint Chiefs at the time, introduced my mother and gave a terrific introduction. And then um, my mother introduced President Clinton. And my mother was always a very good speaker. That was one of her best skills, where she was an excellent speaker. And she gave one of her best speeches. Mm -hmm. And at the then Clinton came up after the introduction and said something which I've always, you know, I frankly have always been proud of. He said, uh, you know, I don't want to put a damper on the events of this evening, but I have to decide whether I should dismiss or just demote the person who decided I should speak after Colonel Early. And that was, <laughs> it, was uh, it was a great event. She was very proud of what they did. So, 
as a woman and specifically as a black woman did she did she talk about or relay any instances where she got resistance or or pushback Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know if it was as much pushback for being a woman as it was pushback for being African American. That that event that you mentioned about her superior officer wanting to see all the women um, when he found out the process that she was doing she had them divided up into three shifts i think i think it was three shifts so you were either sleeping working or on your break or something like that i don't know but it was three shifts that she had developed and he wanted to see everybody and he she explained well that group is is asleep right now and that group is doing this and that group is doing that and and he said that you know he was not happy and he was going to send a, a white officer to show her how to do her job because obviously she couldn't handle this and um i what did she say over my dead body over my dead body <laughs> she said over my dead body she sir over my dead body sir <laughs> so, so i mean she this was in the 1940s so obviously she was going to get a lot of pushback for being colored and um and also in europe they were not even used to seeing a lot of black people so the the europeans were kind of curious and um, some of their behavior i guess could be considered insulting but you had to remember that they didn't see black people so so the answer to your question is yes <laughs> push that so did she tell you guys any stories about like after you got older or what have you um, of different things that may have happened? Because I know sometimes we, our families don't tend to talk about the past all that much. And um, I think that's one of the problems as a genealogical researcher that we tend to have when they don't want us to know something. They're like, won't you just leave it there and not, you know, just let it go. So what, did she, you know, talk to you guys about some of the things that she went through or any other stories that she gave other than the one that you just talked about, which happens to be my favorite, but, um, I learned things from reading the book. Okay. <laughs> we never, I mean, I don't think it was a question of her wanting to hide it. It just like I said, she was my mother, so we didn't we didn't talk about it. I don't know about with my brother, but we didn't. I think after when she started, you know, because we all have been honored about writing this book, and then in the eighties when she started writing a book, she did talk about stuff more. And um, you know, I mean, one story. Um, well, let me say one story, and which you may be aware of, and then I want to talk about this. There was some stuff that happened when she was writing the book. Um, you know, the when they were coming back and they got on the the, the uh, ship, uh, and the 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 officer, um, the there were everybody's going back to the United States. War's over, or the war's over, and um, the, there were, there were thousands of people on the ship, thousands of soldiers. There were women, black women and white women in their units in, uh, on board. The, 
white nurses did not want my mother to be in command of them um, because they felt they should, but my mother was the ranking officer. So they wanted to have their own command and um, that was simply denied. And so they, some of them said they were going to, um, you know, they wouldn't travel with the, with the black officer in command of them. And my mother went down and said, you know, that's fine, we're all going home. You have 15 minutes to get off the ship because they're leaving. And um, the, uh, after that, when she finished that, it turned out the captain of the ship was standing behind her and said, uh, Colonel Early is correct, or Major Early, I don't know if she's Major or Colonel at that point. And, um, you, and, um, and by the way, it's now 14 minutes. So, oh, wow. so, um, so she, yeah, she had, did have things happen. She talked about some incidents on trains in the United States. But one thing that I do want to point out is that, that when she was writing the book, one thing I did get to read was she had kind of a memoir that she'd written in 1946 that was, um, so this is like in the 1980s, so it's like 40 years later. She'd written this memoir in like in 1946 and a lot of the material that's in the book um, in, in One Woman's Army is actually is in that memoir, but it's written very differently. And there are two things about it that are that were quite striking. And now it's been many years since I read it. One was this person who wrote this was um, had just was just finishing taking nearly a thousand women overseas in a war and was has was you know just um, very um, um, strong and powerful in their in their in their uh, image of what they've done and feeling very gung ho about it and not as good a writer as the person forty years later but a whole different perspective really you know much younger perspective and also. Um, there was another aspect, of course, this is this person who, you know, I'm not even a glimmer in anybody's eye at this point. So it's kind of fascinating, this person who will become your mother. But the other thing is there are incidents that in the book are talk about discriminatory actions where the reference is a little different because it's almost like in this case, they didn't discriminate. It was so prevalent that when somebody didn't um, take a, you know, didn't discriminate, um, that was the thing that was noted. You know, it was like, you just were gonna be discriminated against. So when somebody didn't, that was the thing that you, you noted. And that was oh, okay. a whole different perspective. Even, you know, it showed how the shift that had occurred. And so, so that, was, that was an interesting item for me. Well, you just actually raised something that I've never really thought about. I'm aware of it, but I've never spent that much time discussing it. So we know from the, the men serving in the military, the kind of the racism that they faced, both on the field, in training, when they got back home, transport out, transport back. Never really thought about the racism between women, between Black women and white women. So you just relate this incident, this hit this um, episode. Mm -hmm. where, you know, your mother's in command of all of these women, she's taken them back, she's taken them, you know, she's gone with them to Europe, brought them back, presumably all of them, you know, safely. But being all but three. With, all but three. And then being met with resistance by white nurses. Mm -hmm. um, that, that kind of, that kind of, it doesn't stun me, but it disappoints me, I guess. I mean, I think, you know, when I remember, and I can't even remember whether this is in the book or not, but I remember my mother talking about it. When she was in officer training um, at the, the Fort Des Moines, that there were classes that were divided up. There were, you know, we're in a war. We're in like a, hmm. a war we haven't, a survival level war. There were classes where there was a, 
there was an instructor for white men, an instructor for black men, an instructor for white women, an instructor for black women. And like, you know, at some point after like a round of these classes, classes, some couple rounds of these classes, somebody realized, you know, we could have actually one person teach this and they could all sit in the same room, you know, listen to the lecture, you know, it just shows you how, you know, the alterations that had to occur. And it does make me think about, um, you know, what, um, you know, I'm not aware. I mean, I, I, you know, I've read books, I've talked to people, and I have some sense of post-World War II, but I'm not aware of pre-World War II America in terms of, but those are the things that made me realize that to whatever degree, post-World War II uh, America was racist, that pre-World War II must have been dramatically worse. I mean, and we're coming out of, you know, because you look at what happened in the 20s and you had the depression in the 30s, which had to make it worse. So, you know. You know, plus in the 20s, there, you know, there was all that lynching. That Absolutely. Was, you know, because again, we were in the, the depths of Jim Crow. But I do find it profoundly disappointing that, you know, your mother's on the front lines in service to her country, which that group of nurses would have known or should have been aware of, because she's not wearing a uniform for nothing, you know, to play to play fancy dress up. And that that service just didn't seem to matter. It just didn't seem to count. Yeah, that's sad. So I don't know if at this point we have any questions from the audience. No, not yet. Okay. They're just listening in awe like I am. I'm, I mean, I'm telling you, I I fell in love with this lady and I'm like, because, I mean, well, first of all, I'm telling you, so I guess we're going to, we can go into the genealogical side of this whole thing. When, because when I first did my, heard about the 6888 and then learned about mm -hmm. Lieutenant Charity her last name was originally Adams. Right. And I was like, oh my God, is this lady related to me? Because if she is, I'm going to be so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so, because it, it just explains the strength of my family and, and, and how this, well, it, not that it explains it, but it fits with the women in my family and the strength that they carry. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's only natural that she has to be related to me. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, that and considering we have a number of atoms, it's the right part of South Carolina. It's the, the you couldn't ask for a more perfect part of South Carolina for us yeah. to connect in. Yeah. So I mean, you were going into that um, before the show. Tell us more about where she came from. Okay. So, and you guys may be able to tell me stuff that I, you know, I, I, so Cokesbury is uh, in uh, Greenwood? Yes. In um, County and um, my knowledge of that is, is, is somewhat limited, but I do know that, um, that um, my mother's mother, I'm, I'm sorry, my mother's father was, uh, grew up there and was one of about a dozen children, um, and um, he eventually and um, he eventually went to um, Biddle University, which became Johnson C. Smith. And he was the either the youngest child or the youngest male child. I don't know which. And they had enough people to work the farm. They were very interested in education. And out of, and um, and his his my my grandmother Adams was a Nash, also from um, Cokesbury, and she in some ways her education is more extraordinary because it's a, a black woman circa 1900 and she got a normal degree in uh, in uh, in um, and um, one of the things that we've found, there's this, I've run into people 
from all over the country who've come out of Cokesbury and come out of that county that there seemed to be such a focus on education. Um, I, and, and, you know, my, when my Aunt Lou, my mother's sister, died uh, uh, around, around 2007, something like that, six or seven, um, I went to the funeral and there were a lot of people there from Cokesbury. And there was a woman who was the, uh, she was a officer of the church. I don't remember exactly what. She wasn't the pastor. And she talked about the AME church there and was saying, they were very proud of the fact that everybody who was at least 21 in, um, in, Cokes, in the church was, had, was either in college or had gone to college. And they were very focused on this education thing. And I have run into people from Charlotte, from um, in the DC area and so forth that have come out of that um, community. And there seems to have been something in that community at the early, very early 20th century that was very focused on um, education. And education is the way we will survive as people and so forth. I don't know why, but something happened there. I may have a partial answer for that, for that, and Donia probably has the other part of the, the answer to that one as well. It was because specifically for that part of South Carolina, it's true across America at, at that period, but places like parts of Edgefield, parts of McCormick County, parts of Greenwood, our people had to fight to build their own schools, to get the land, to build their schools, to educate their kids. And I guess when you have to fight that hard for something, it just becomes cherished. It's not even meaningful. It, it actually becomes something that, that's cherished because you had to fight so hard for it. And given the fact that it was South Carolina and um, that area of South Carolina, um, that, you know, they went through a really hard time after the reconstruction period. So there were several um, quote unquote riots. Um, they were fighting the black codes. They were fighting Jim Crow. They were going through all of those different things to still be able to create these African-American schools that will allow them to move forward. Because especially, unfortunately in the area that you're your parents came from Greenwood, Edgefield, all of that. Um, they they were hell-bent on holding Black people down. Like it was not, they they did not play games. They were determined. They, they didn't, they didn't even, um, so for example, death records, birth certificates, things like that, they were mandated to be, to be, done for black people in 1915. Well, there were other places in South Carolina that were giving death records for, for um, black people, but not Edgefield. They had to be made to do everything. They had to, you know, they had to be made to do it. They had to be mandated. If it wasn't mandated, then it wasn't getting done. And, and that was a part of where they lived. That, that was the Greens, that was the Greenwood, the, the Edgefield, the Aiken, that was that whole Cokesbury, that was that area. That's the, so yeah, like Brian said, it was a cherished thing to be able to fight for it and win it and get it. And they had to go, you know, they had to go through it. That's when they realized that education was such a, it was very important because they had to fight so hard for it. Well, it's still carried forward, which is really quite fascinating. And I would also imagine that as a community, and that's just even the, the wider Black community of the area, because you were literally under attack 24-7, 365 days a year, really, yes. really brought that community together. It just all that adversity just served to make them stronger. And it seems as though yeah. your, your mother 
got some of that. And she definitely that would have been, got some of that. Yeah, it would have been, you know, my grandfather grew up there and she born in North Carolina. Where do you, Judy, do you remember the Kittrell, uh, North Carolina? And then they grew up and then grew up in Columbia. But that, that's really interesting. Oh, by the way, my, my father was from, from Ohio. Uh, he was from, grew up in Dayton and, and was born uh, around somewhere along the Ohio-West Virginia border. Uh, what was it called? I've forgotten. <laughs> I can think of the name of that tiny little town. So your mom, you said your mom was born in North Carolina. Is that Halifax County? Kittrell, I don't know. You don't know? Because a lot of the Adams in our family, well, so my Adams line, um, I have, my my great-grandmother was Adams. Her name was Katie. And her father was Ezra, and Ezra had a good number of children. But he had one son who had more children than him. And he had, his name was Arthur. And Arthur had about 16 children. Arthur was the first and only family that allowed me out of South Carolina with my research. They actually moved to North Carolina. So I'm wondering if that Adams group knew your mom's Adams group. And um, that, that would be, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, now that you said Cokesbury, I'm looking for her. It's on and popping now. I'm <laughs> well, it's, it's quite it's poss possible, but my, I've always thought that the the North Carolina thing was like that was not part of the that was like an event as opposed to a history in the sense that you know the South Carolina was. Really I was going to say the person that she should talk to is Madeline. Uh, yes, and she should. Yes, our cousin Madeline. She was in. She's kind of into genealogy. And she's gone through Ancestry.com and pulled up some records and things. And she could probably be more helpful on that than we can. <laughs> so you guys were never really interested in, in, in that portion? I mean, you, did you know your grandfather and personally? You know? I knew it. Judy might have um, He passed away when I was like eight. I think grandmama died when I was, no, grandmama died when I was eight and granddaddy died when I was nine. So I met him, we visited his house, we visited them, but I didn't really know him. I was told that he baptized all of his grandchildren. So he baptized me as a baby but I don't have any personal memories of granddad. And, and what was the name of the church again? Bethel. Bethel? Yeah. Bailey Bethel? I, I don't know. It was, I'm gonna look it was into Bethel. it because I got a Bailey in, Bethel, Bethel in Greenwood. In Bethel. Oh, it was in Columbia, okay. Yeah, um, yeah this was all in Columbia. Yeah, and I could, I have, I'm sorry, this is gonna sound silly. I remember, I have this memory of grand of our grandfather taking all of the grandchildren and all of his children and their children to Cokesbury and to the woods that they were, that, that, that land had become like just woods. And, and we went bear hunting. Now, the, this is before I was born. Wasn't yeah. it before I was born? And you, you wouldn't have done it you anyway, right, Judy? <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember ever going to Cokesbury. Okay, well, this if was. I was, if I was there, I was an infant. Well, I remember going to Cokesbury a few times, but this time, we just, you know, then we walked through the woods and. You know, running bear and all that, but you know, it was funny. It Did was, you see a bear? No, uh, but anyhow, but there, it, he had a shotgun, and you know, he walked through, you know, he walked through the woods, and that, that was the, the big, and it was a big adventure for all of the very young grandchildren 
Um, it sounds like fun. It was. It was. It, it was sounds fun. like it's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it was and I would have been the granddaughter that said, mm, no, thank you, but I'll sit here with mom. Yeah, or, or something. I would have been that baby because I'm, yeah. <laughs> I don't so, like I don't like dirt or, or walking through dirt or anything. <laughs> well, I, I remember um I remember going to Cokesbury once and there was a cousin and I boy I can't remember his last name. But um I remember we played and um you know I one time I was probably I don't know. He was he was in sixth grade, and I remember thinking he was really old, so I must have been very young. And um, and so I never saw him again until actually that trip to South Carolina. I was talking about that funeral, and we were talking. It was sitting next to this guy. I was talking, and and I realized I know who this guy is, and and uh, and I started describing his. His, the farm that they grew up on, which didn't have running water, but it had a well in the front. And I described his entire, except I got the color of the well wrong. Other than that, I, and then and his older sister was there and explained that I was Hoppy. That was my nickname. And I, because I was Stanley Early and he didn't have any, to, but when I was a little kid, my nickname was Hoppy. And so he knew who I was. Wow. So you may not have the answer to this. <clears throat> Did your mother ever um, talk about whether she was still in touch with some of the women that were in her command? I don't really know, except for she was in touch with, uh, um, we were talking to him, a Campbell, um, Noel Campbell. Nicole Campbell. Nicole Campbell. Um, but other than that, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So how did you guys feel when um, you were approached about trying to get the entire six triple eight the congressional medal of honor were you approached about that and and if you were what were your what were your feelings well i thought it was wonderful but it had been the thing that had really brought it so much back into focus the possibility was um where time flies probably about three years now the um the um, the event the um, the the statue and event at the at the um, at Fort Leavenworth because that was just so extraordinary um, you know and they and they um, they had all of the they had so many of the women who were still alive uh, there they had um, uh, and they. You know, at at the um, at Fort at the command school of the United States Army, just as you drive up, there is this pond, and uh, it has a giant statue of a of a buffalo soldier on horseback, and there are uh, and then there are busts of uh, significant African American. Uh, officers in U.S. military history. There's, you know, Benjamin O. Davis. There, uh, there's uh, um, um, Colin Powell. There's, you know, and now there's one of my mother. And that's was just wonderful. And they sure. and they put it on a pedestal that had all of the. Um, they, they managed to get the names of everyone in the unit, except for 13. They're still trying to find those last 13. There were some names are missing. Except for those 13 names, they had the names of everybody who served in the 6th AAA on the pedestal. It's so beautiful. And they actually, they did the initial bus. They're actually replacing the bus with a different one because they, they wanted to get it, make it, uh, make, improve it. But it was, and then they had a parade for, it for in Fort Leavenworth for the women who never got that. And then um, there was a, an event doing unveiling the, uh, and there were the commander of the base and you know senior commanders in the, um, in the army and uh, 
a senator from Kansas, and I'm this is terrible, I'm blanking on his name, who was just so moved. He started he started talking about he never realized until this event that um, the six triple eight had affected his family because of the letters that had kept his family together had come through the six uh -huh. six triple eight. He never knew that in his, you know, and he's, and so it was just an, an amazing event. And after that, with the documentary, with the, um, the getting the, because aside from the Congressional Gold Medal, they never got a unit citation. I mean, they never got a unit citation. So first they got that, that has already occurred. That took like a year after that. And then they, um, and now the Congressional Gold Medal and you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get through um, this time. And um, so it's really been the last, and then there are two different um, movie companies that have been looking at making a movie about the six triple eight or about my mother and they're, they're doing their thing and they're working and they, we've talked to them and hopefully they'll be successful, but you know, it's always a million miles from the original concept to the, to the uh, completion of this thing. Um, so yes, it's become very tangible and exciting, but it's the, and while we had always gotten stuff every few years and, you know, and there, there've been lots of things, the, the last three years have been pretty extraordinary. Because I actually did a search on Time Magazine during the period, during the World War II period, I couldn't find it. I mean, I found plenty of articles about men, you know, men's service and beyond in the military didn't really see anything about even women in service during world war ii and yeah i found that kind of kind of surprising i don't think there was a whole lot yeah, i think the only thing that i ever saw the only thing that i ever saw for women in world war ii was them here and building you know mm. taking over where the men that had to leave the factories these women went into the factories and started doing that type of stuff but even then when you saw that they were talking about white women they weren't talking about the black women and their role mm -hmm. in this whole situation so that that was what i saw yeah there uh, there was an interview we did with uh, New York Times um, in uh, for the that was for the that was um, for the seventy fifth anniversary of the end of World War Two and uh, it was really I don't know whether you saw the article it was a very good article and so forth and one of the things that uh, the woman who was the office author by the way who is a retired um, well, not retired, and she spent a few years in the, the military as an officer. She's black, and she's now a Times reporter. Uh, she, you know, she went did her own search of articles about uh, during World War II about the six triple eight, and she found a couple of really like one paragraph items, and that's somebody in the business focused doing doing doing, uh, you know doing like major research is she was interviewing people all over the country. So there was not much, there was some, but not much. So I'm getting, and correct me if I'm wrong, if, I'm wrong, if I've got, if I have the wrong impression, but I am getting the impression that, you know, the women did their service, they, you know, came back on the ships, they got off the ships and what were they told? You know, thank you for your service, you can go now. So like, no yes. thank you, no kind of official recognition. Right. No kind of official recognition until this started to be in the 1990s. It started to be, and it's now sort of, and um, it's just, and I can say that, uh, but I do want to make, I don't know, this is maybe a political economic comment or something, but one of the things that there was, which affected my mother and my father, millions of other people uh, and many mem members of 6888 was the GI Bill. The GI Bill, one of the things that 
really changed a lot. I mean, it created the opportunity for all kinds of education that people would not have um, had the opportunity for. And um, so there was that. But official recognition of 6888, other than thank you, no, that, that's, you know. And there are only, I think there were 11 members still alive when this happened, when this event happened I described in Kansas. I think there's like seven now, uh, maybe six. So, you know, it's, um, it would be nice if this gets done, but there's still, still two around this year. Yeah, we tried very hard to get one of these surviving surviving service women on the show, but you know, considering the age that they are, they have health issues, and it, yeah, unfortunately, it just wasn't possible. I will say, I have met several in the last couple of years, and so some impressive women. And so, um, and uh, I met um, several at the event in Kansas, and then um, recently one in. Uh, here in Prince George's at uh, uh, Prince George's County up in Greenbelt where uh, an event was done. So they really have been, um, it's, it's really quite impressive. I mean, I kind of take it for granted and I think we in the modern age take it for granted about movement, the freedom, you know, the freedom to move. We're talking about a group of women who more than likely had never even left the county, much less the state that they had been born in. Your mother obviously did because she was born in North Carolina, but lived in South Carolina. To go from that, to go to be to living abroad, to, to you know, service abroad in a foreign country when you haven't even left the county or probably even the town that you were born in. And again, where your mother came from was a very rural part of America. You know, so I say going from the transition from that to being on the, the kind of front service lines. I mean, that, that must have been quite a quite a mental journey. To, to well, you know, my mother had been at Wilberforce um, and then had gone back to, um, uh, was teaching in South Carolina when, when the war started. Um, the, um, uh, but, but, but you're right, there was a, and that's one of the things that, that is, you know, you, if you look sort of historically in terms of, for me, that one of the things that I'm always fascinated by, I love history, I just really do. I'm fascinated by sort of big movements of events. And one of the things that happened was millions of people uh, left the country who never would have left even their part of the count, their county or whatever. And, um, you know, it changed the perspective uh, really dramatically, for better or worse, but it radically altered the perspective. And, um, and, um, and for, for the, for many of these women, this would have been, was a life altering event. Um, but they were of every background from, you know, from having limited exposure to, to being well-educated to, you know, to, to being from all over the country and mostly, and they mostly, they, and then there was the additional travel thing because in some of the southern states, they couldn't enlist, so they had to go north. And I think I think South Carolina was one of them. You know, you couldn't enlist in in your home state because black people could. I mean, black women couldn't enlist, so she had to go to other places. Um, no, I just learned. I just learned something new. <laughs> I think my mother. Trying to remember whether she enlisted in New York or not, but I. When she was at Ohio State? Yeah. Uh, I mean, after she came out of Ohio State. Yeah. No, no, she was teaching. She was teaching. She was teaching when she decided to enlist, so. I think she went, I think she had to go up to New York, but I'm not sure. Um, a lot of people did, had to go up. You, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't enlist in the, Black women couldn't enlist in the South. So again, it's that theme of, of black military service starting in, I'm, I know that we've had a history of fighting in every engagement in this country's history, but really starting with civil war, black men had to prove that they, that they could indeed be soldiers fighting for the United States colored troops. 
So you would have felt that with the success with that, it would have been easy for men of world to serve in World War One. It wasn't. But it wasn't. Right. And you would think after they proved themselves in World War One, it would be easier in World War Two. And it wasn't. So th this theme is still. I mean, you can go back further than that. I was just looking at something the other day uh, about the War of 1812 and 20% of the sailors in the who served in the on the, in the Great Lakes fleet, you know, all those were African-American, you know, and yet the Navy became the most segregated part of the armed services, you know, so, um, it, you know, it, it is a, we have a periodic problem or, or cyclic problem in this country that we have got to, it's a cycle that we've got to, uh, to progress as a, as a people or progress and progress as a country, we have to, break that cycle of repeating the same mistakes. And I think that's an awesome way to end this show because you have definitely, this is the reason why we um, wanted to have you, the two of you on this show to end the cycle of not knowing our history and, and giving, giving people a different version and letting them know, not a different version, the correct version because I don't want anybody to ever get up here and look at our show and say oh they're doing what the new word is revision is history this isn't revision it, it's not revised it's the rest of it <laughs> you know it, it, it's, it's, it's just the rest of it and, I, and that's the, I call it restorative, I call it restorative history Yes, restorative. That's exactly what it is. It's that piece that 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 piece of that picture that was kind of blurred, and now we took it to the the photo restoration, and they were able to put it back together the way it was supposed to be. That is the perfect word. That's restorative history, and um, I'm just so grateful that the two of you decided to come on and really, you know, talk more about your mom and give us the human side of her, as well as um, just talking about the stories that she did share. Can you please share the name of the book that she that was written? Uh, she, it was, she was, it was one Woman's Army, which was uh, written in, uh, uh, which uh, she wrote, uh, I think, 87. And uh, it's still available. Yeah, it is. I thought yeah, I had a copy of it. I'm definitely gonna get it. And we will put a link to that in um in our broadcast. Okay. We will. Well, thank you, you can... so much again. What was you gonna say, Miss Judy? You can purchase it from Texas A and M Press. You know, Texas A&M is an awesome school. I, I mean, I went to Jackson State, so I don't want any of my Jackson State mm. fans to feel a certain way. <laughs> but Texas A&M, when it comes to African-Americans, specifically African-American women, they've done a lot because it was also Texas A&M for Opal and the, um, the land grants and things of that nature where it was helping Black people you know, receive, help them get their land that they were owed when they, as even though they were, their families were enslaved, they were, they had access, they had, you know, they were supposed to get parts of that land because they were children of the enslaver. And they really have this whole land grant, grant situation where they will do, you know, help you get your land. And this was all done by one of our um, family members named Opal Foster. Opal, okay. Lee, Opal Lee, not Opal Foster, Opal Lee. And I just loved her dearly. She died about five years ago, but Texas A&M, they were the ones that did that. So kudos to them. They, you know, they were very great. That's great. And would you like to have Donia with them next week? So the third installment of the show will be um, Lieutenant, I believe she's Lieutenant Colonel uh, Edna Cummings. Edna is the one that is spearheading the Congressional Medical Medal of Honor. And we will also be talking with another um, daughter of one of the six triple eight. Her name is Janice Martin. And Janice is the daughter to Indiana, I believe her name was, Indiana Martin. Do you know that name? Do either one of you know that name? 
Um, I can tell you that I've, I've, I've uh, done, done, been in a few events with Edna uh, uh, Cunningham, and she's really impressive. She's she is very impressive. She's you, she, you, you guys will really enjoy talking with her. Well, thank you again um, for sharing your mom with us and um i've already started doing some research i actually was researching i i've already come across them i didn't even know it brian i'm gonna tell you about it later. <laughs> but i've actually already come across them i sure have so i'm excited so on that note thank you everyone however you've been watching us for the last hour thank you for joining us thank you to our guests for um for sharing such lovely stories about your mom and your memories and your thoughts. All of you at home, all, stay safe, be well, and we will see you next week when we have part three covering the, the 6 Triple Eight Battalion. Until yes. then, see you next week. Bye. Bye.